Good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys here. Uh, we're starting off a uh, series called Christmas Story. Uh, pretty fitting for this time of the year, right? And so within this, we're going to talk about the different, as like a story has, you know, different characters, different things, different events take place within that story. We're going to be talking about some, uh, some of the uh, individuals, some of the players within that uh, uh, Christmas story uh, that we celebrate and we sing about and we uh, worship. And, and so uh, each week we're going to take a look at a couple different people. Today we're going to take a look at someone you might not think we would typically look at, which would be King Herod. And it's just uh, something that I think as we look at his life, we can draw some parallels and uh, bring him into the 21st century and, and learn uh, from some of his events. And, and again, as we talk about this Christmas story, I think everybody, we're all living out our stories, right? We're all, everybody's breathing in here right now, so the final chapter has not been written yet of our stories, Correct. If you see anybody laying down, please point to them, so make sure that their story is not done yet, okay? But, um, you know, uh, as, we, as we look at a story, you know, uh, many of us have maybe our stories kind of scripted out, right? We kind of have, have where, you know, what, where you kind of the, the draft, the outline of where we want our stories to go, how our stories should end up, where, you know, where we should be at certain chapters of our lives, Correct. Uh, as we take a look at the life of Herod, uh, what we see is, and, and this, is, this is the way it is with, with many of us too, what we see is we've got our stories scripted out and then something comes in and needs to change a chapter of our story and it's like, yeah, I don't know where to put that at. You know what I'm saying? Herod was like that. Herod was living out his story and as he's living out his story, his life, God became with us, God Emmanuel, God became flesh and invaded this world and invaded Herod's world. And Herod was like, yeah, I'm not sure where to fit this into my story. Now, we read, you know, again, we read uh, about how he, God was going to play into the life of, of Herod. And we see, you know, see some of the things that Herod did. And so we do read about his story. But uh, this morning, I want you to just think about your story, how your story is going. What chapter are you on? Where have you been? Where are you heading? What's, what's next? Um, you know, for this time of the year, I bet many of us have, just switching gears here a little bit, I bet many of us have, you know, stories we remember as growing up as kids, you know, traditions and things like that when it comes to, you know, to Christmas time. Some of you could probably share some things like, you know what, I remember growing up, or I remember this, or I remember that, and this is something that, maybe this is something that we do all the time because it's part of my story. Um, you know, and some of you have some, you know, some of those things within our lives. So as we, as we take a look at this concept of story, I, wanna, I want us to look back to um, that first Christmas, uh, if you will, uh, in Matthew chapter 2, and I want us to take a look at uh, Matthew's version of of, uh, as he tells the story, as he tells the story of what took place uh, many, many years ago. And uh, if you would, I'd like for you to follow along with me. And we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 18. And within that context, we're going to read about Herod, uh, again, one player uh, within this particular story. Uh, chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 1, says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his, mo- with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod had realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem, in its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, as we take a look at the life of Herod, we're very limited on, you know, as we, as we look, you know, just from scriptures, we're very limited on the information that we have about this guy by the name of King Herod. There are some things that we, we draw out of that, but first, uh, before I get to that, I want to show you some of his accomplishments. Uh, some of you may be familiar with, uh, maybe you've heard some uh, sermons on King Herod, uh, you know, and, and maybe you've heard some of, the, some of his accomplishments or achievements as he was king. Uh, he he uh, built some... Uh, uh, in his time, he built some really uh, some archaeological uh, archaeological things that were very advanced. I think for their time, this would have been where he. This is modern day. This is where he would have had his his uh, his his stuff. You know, this this was a uh, his stuff. His uh, I don't know what house. Okay, I don't, I, I am drawing a blank. His uh, his house, his palace. There we go. His palace. Whatever kings live in. So anyhow. Uh, anyhow, you can see that you can see that um, at, at where this is at, it would be very hard for an enemy to come up and and, and try to take over, uh, which played into uh, his philosophy. This is a model of what it kind of looked like. The, it's kind of washed out a little bit, but you can see how it kind of tiered and, and kind of advance, advances upward. Um, this is a little bit one, one that you could see a little bit more, but the things he built was just really uh, for I think for their time. I often think you know when you read when you when, when you think about our times and you read about the tools and technology and advancements that we have, uh, it, it amazes me the stuff that they built without some of the, with the stuff that we have, and so uh, it's, it's just very amazing if you see you know even if you see some of the ruins here, some of the ruins there, but you can see where it was built. It was built for actually this uh, overlooked uh, the Dead Sea, and so it was a really you know had a great view, but it was also positioned to where it would be very hard for someone to come in and take it over. But this is the one thing we know about Herod. He was a very paranoid, fearful individual, okay? Uh, In the third verse, it says, when King Herod heard this, uh, hearing the news that the king of the Jews was born, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And then it says, and and all Jerusalem with him. Now, we got two different we got two different layers here. King Herod was disturbed for one reason. Jerusalem was disturbed for the other. 
King Herod was disturbed because this guy was, uh, as I said, he was very fearful. He was very paranoid. He was, uh, fear drove him to do some really crazy, insane things. Jerusalem was fearful because, or disturbed because Herod was disturbed. You know how the saying goes, when mama's not happy, nobody's happy. I don't believe in that, by the way, okay? For you women, I just I believe that's not a good comment, okay? So just put that out there. I'm just using that for example, though. But you know what I'm saying? It was the same kind of concept here. When Herod was upset, everybody look out because something, something, something very nasty could happen. It's been told that... Uh, well, first of all, he built the temple for the Jews, the one that uh, would have been there during Jesus' time, the one we would see some of the remains of to this day, um, the ruins of. He built that temple uh, for the Jews, not really so much because he favored them, but more to gain their favor, more as a political movement. Uh, he literally built mountains to protect himself uh, from, from his enemies and things like that. It's been said, it's been uh, suggested that when Jesus pointed to a certain mountain in the Gospels where he said, if you have the faith, you can move that mountain, he was pointing to a mountain that King Herod had built uh, that you know again that fortified his, his himself in closed himself in uh, when Herod was upset when he was paranoid when he's very fearful uh, again it led him to do some insane things uh, it's been it's been uh, documented that he killed various family members because he thought that they were out to get him he was very, he was suspicious of them and so he I think it was his brother uh, and a couple others that he had killed. Uh, he misunderstood this whole concept of the king of the Jews coming. He viewed it as a political, a political kingdom, whereas, obviously, as we know, that it wasn't a political kingdom whatsoever. It was a spiritual kingdom, as well as many people missed that, missed that uh, uh, particular message and, and, and prophecy uh, in that day. Uh, and therefore, and again, therefore, uh, he... Uh, thinking that it was a political, uh, um, a political kingdom that was going to be established, he then puts a decree out to what? To kill all boys two years and under. That's insane. Is it not? I mean, come on. If, if somebody put that out today, we would say, that's not right. I mean, we would say, this is, this is, this is insane. This stuff, this is insanity. That stuff has to stop. This guy was literally driven by fear and paranoia. And, to sum it all up, at the end of his life, at the end of his life when he was getting ready to die, he told uh, some of his family members to, to gather, he summoned, uh, he, actually, he, did, he summoned some highly respected Jewish leaders together, and when he was going to die, he told his family to kill these leaders so that people would mourn for them because he was afraid that there wouldn't be anybody that would mourn for him at his, at his, at his funeral. That's insane, is it not? Am I the only one that thinks this is insane? I, I mean, I just think this, this guy was driven to do things that was just absolutely crazy. Now, you know, we may not say, well, I'm that insane. I'm that, you know, uh, paranoid. But I wonder how many of us sitting here this morning are fear, fearful of losing control of our thrones. Because that's essentially what was at stake here, Right? He viewed it more as political. But I wonder how many of us, God was invading his world. God was coming into his world saying, you know, there is a new ruler here. There is someone that's going to come in, but it wasn't going to come in and set his throne up in a physical sense, but more in the, in the spiritual sense of our hearts. And I wonder how many of us in here, if truth be known, if we would really get down to it, we could say, you know what, I can identify a little bit with this guy. Because when we talked about that radical series uh, a few weeks ago, a few, you know, like a month ago, when we talked about that, I really struggled with some of those things suggested. 
I really struggle when I look at the gospel and Jesus says, I want you to give up everything. I really struggle with that. Is that really what he means? Is it really that literal? Am I really literally supposed to hate my family and love him only? And some of us, as we read the Gospels, we say, I, I, I just don't know. That, that, that brings fear within my life. If God would come into my life and say, liquidate everything, liquidate everything and follow me, I don't know if I... I mean, I wonder how many of us could say, you know what, I, I, I think about that. I think about that. And so here we have King Herod that was, was, was fearful of losing his throne. I wonder how many of us in here this morning could say, I resonate a little bit with that. I resonate about losing the throne of control in my life. And, and, and the issue is that fear will drive us to do some crazy things. Now, if you want to follow along with me, I want to, I want to share with you a, a particular story found in Exodus that, that just kind of really illustrates this uh, more so for us um, when it comes to what fear will do to us. If you want to follow along, uh, I'm going to read just two verses in Exodus chapter 14, uh, verses 11 and 12. And within that story, what we see, what, what's taking place is um, the people of uh, the Hebrew people were in, being held in captivity by the Egyptians. If you've read the story, um, they, be, they were held in captivity by the Egyptians and they were being forced to do labor for free. Okay? And so they were under this, this tyranny, in a sense. And so they were crying out to God, and they were saying, God, save me, save us. God, deliver us. God, get us out of this horrible situation. And so God hears their prayers. God sends a deliverer by the name of Moses. And Moses begins this process through God's instruction, through God's leading, and, 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 and through the events that God has orchestrated. And God begins to lead them out of Egypt. Now, as they leave Egypt, they have the Egyptian army and the Pharaoh following hard on their heels because they're not happy that they're leaving, right? This is our free labor leaving us. And so they're pressing behind them and they come up to the Red Sea and the Red Sea it just so happens that God brings them to the Red Sea at, and the, at the point of where, where they're standing is the most it's, it's, it's at the point where it's the most flooded time of the year the flood it's the springtime or whatever and so everything is stacked against them fear literally overcomes them and listen to what happens. Listen to what happens to them. And this is the, illustri- this is, uh, uh, the dialogue between uh, these guys and Moses. And listen to what they're saying to Moses and how fear uh, really makes us do some, some uh, crazy things. Listen to this. First thing it can do, it, can make, it makes us skeptical. Okay? In, in Exodus chapter 14, verse, the very first part of verse 11, it says this. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? I mean, talk, can you hear the skepticism? Can you hear how skeptical they are? Moses, are you kidding me? You bring us out, you bring us out here to just meet our de- to, for us to meet our death here? Is it because there were no graves in Egypt? You brought us out here so that we can die? See, that's what happens when we begin to fear stuff. We begin to doubt, right? We become afraid. We begin to doubt things. We doubt ourselves. We doubt God. We doubt other people. And we become very skeptical. Studies have shown that at the root... The, or studies have shown that cynics at the root have a basic, basically a problem with fear. They're afraid. And that's what makes us so cynical. And we ridicule. And we become afraid of things. And so we become skeptical. By the way, I'm going to go through four of these things. Just to keep it in mind, these are not spiritual gifts. Okay? These are things that we don't want. But these make us, uh, fear can make us skeptical. The second thing that can happen is uh, fear can make us selfish. In the, in the second part of that verse 11, it says, they're uh, talking again to Moses, and, and they say this, What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? What have you done to us? 
What have you done to me? What are you doing? Doesn't that sound familiar? When we get afraid, it's like, what are you doing to me? God, where are you taking me? God, I don't like this one bit. And what happens is we become so focused on ourselves, we're not focused on anybody else, we really don't care how it's affecting other people, we care about how it's affecting me. This is making me uncomfortable, this is scaring me, this is drawing me out of my comfort zone, this is affecting me, 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 me. And we can become very selfish. And when we're afraid, we begin to accuse other people. We go into this thing where it's like, okay, it's got to be someone else's fault. So we accuse other people. We begin to excuse ourselves. It can't possibly be my fault. I couldn't have, you know, there's nothing I did in this to really bring this upon myself. And you start blaming other people. We excuse ourselves. We pass the buck. We, we, we literally run from responsibility. Commitments just become, you know, we just shirk them off. And so we may become uh, skeptical. We may become selfish. The next one is we may become stubborn. In verse 12, they say this to Moses. They say, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? In another translation, listen to this, because to me, this, is, <laughs> this sounds so familiar uh, to, to the way we operate when we get scared. All of us do this. Listen to this other translation. Did we not tell you before that this would happen? You ever notice how everybody is a genius when things start becoming, when things become a little cramped, Right? Did we not tell you that this was going to happen? Why didn't you listen to me? Why didn't you listen to me back there? And we become very stubborn. We resist change when we're afraid. Moses, don't rock the boat. You know, this may have sounded like a great, grandiose idea back there. But right now, I don't, you know... Didn't we tell you that this was going to happen? Just quit rocking the boat. Let's just, we got to figure this out. Don't upset the status quo. We've always done it this way. You see, fear keeps people from growing. It'll keep businesses from growing. It'll keep churches from growing. It'll keep everything from, it keeps everything stagnant. Because we become stubborn. And we won't admit it when we're wrong. Somebody said the hardest thing to open is a closed mind. And so we, become, we can become skeptical. We, we start doubting everything. We become selfish. It's all about me. It's, I'm, this, isn't, this isn't going the way I intended it. Well, I become stubborn. And then last, we become short-sighted. The last part of verse 12 says this. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Do you ever notice how, do you ever notice how we as humans, our memory becomes very short at times? These guys were living... They were doing labor for free, okay? Moses goes in, if you've read the story, Moses goes in, you know, God hears their prayer, and Moses goes in to deliver them. And when Moses, and and this is the beauty of it all, guys, I really invite you to go back and read this story, because this is really, the the beauty of this is, Moses knew everything that was going to happen before it even happened. God told him. God said, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him, let my people go. But, this is God talking, but... He's not going to let the people go. And I don't know about you, but as a, you know, if I was in Moses' shoes, it would be like, what? Why are you telling me to go then? But Moses, out of his faithful, you know, being faithful, he does it. But here's the issue. He goes and he does that, and at one time, they say, well, we're, you know what we're going to do? We're tired of hearing this, and what we're going to do is we're going to take some of the resources. They're, they're there to make bricks and all that kind of stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to take some of the resources away so they even got to work harder to produce what we're asking them to produce. Did they forget? How did, how did that escape their mind? But all of a sudden, they're making statements as, as, as such. 
it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt, to serve the Egyptians, than to die in the desert. And you know what they're saying? They wanted to get back to the good old days. I don't, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder where the good old days are at. Because like when we're living like right now, we say we want to go back to the good old days. But when we were in the good old days, we were living... It's, it's like a, you know, it's a cycle. Were there ever any good old days? They wanted to return. They wanted to retreat. They wanted to back off. Fear makes us do some crazy stuff, right? Now, as we take a look at this in the context of Christmas, this is exactly what Herod was experiencing. Herod, you know, Herod didn't have the luxury of understanding the prophecies. He didn't understand, you know, he wasn't a Jew. He didn't understand any of that stuff. He wasn't looking for the Messiah. He wasn't like the Magi that was looking for this Messiah to come and invade his world. In fact, because he was so paranoid and so fearful, that's the last news that he wanted to hear, is that there was somebody called the King of the Jews that was coming. And so for him, this was a major threat. And again, I wonder how many of us in here this morning feel that way when God comes into our lives and says, I want to invade your world. I want to set up camp on your throne. I want to have control of your life. I want to address some areas within your life that needs addressing. I want to peel back some layers within your life that will make you whole. I want to get to the root of some issues that will make your brokenness whole again. And guys, for some of us, we say, I don't know about that. Because when God starts coming in our lives and prying around, it can become uncomfortable. And I think some of us tend to fall into these categories where we start becoming skeptical about things. And we start becoming short-sighted and stubborn. And we say, you know what, God? Why don't you you let me just stay in control here? Why don't you let me just kind of keep things in status quo and not rock the boat? And I wonder how many of us would, you know, would in here this morning identify. I think this video that's coming up enables us to understand what we're missing if we're falling in, you know, falling into that path, into that rut. And it also gives us the, the message of what it means to change and how to change. Check out this video. Christmas. It means many different things to many different people. But if you condense the many meanings of Christmas down to just one simple truth, you'll always end up with four words. Over and over and over again. Four words. God is with us. The holy God of Israel, wrapped warmly in humanity, is crying real tears in a real city with real parents who are trying their best to take it all in. God is with us. He's on our planet, on our countryside, in our manger. Emmanuel, the very name the angel speaks, is now given to Jesus, because God is with us. Fast forward 2,000 years. The four words that changed history can now change us. Those four words are the only words that can bring meaning to the deepest places of our hearts. For the woman whose husband walked out on her and who continually struggles to pick up the pieces. For the elderly couple who can no longer care independently for themselves and who must now rely on the care of others. 
For the man who watches as all of his friends get married off, and who painfully wonders if there's any woman out there who will ever take an interest in him. For the person who is seeking truth and looking hard at Jesus as a possibility. You are not alone. You never have been, and you never will be. Because God in Christ wrapped himself in human flesh, stepped out of eternity and into time, and chose a cave in Bethlehem to communicate one simple, abiding truth. God is with us. And those four words have the power and the beauty to change every waking moment. See what happens is we miss that we miss those four words. When God wants to come into our world and invade our world, what happens is so often we begin to take control of the throne of our lives. We say, whoa, 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 hang on a second, God. I got, I got this. I, I can take care of this. And so some of the biggest things that we may go through, some of the things that are so painful within our lives, some of the things that really just come in and just wreak havoc within our lives, whether it be external things or even internal things where God is wanting to come into our lives to conform us more into His image, those big things that come into our life, for some reason we say, you know what, God, I got this one. Let me take care of this one. And then we begin to really struggle. Fear makes us do some crazy things. One of the craziest things we can do is to think that we can control our lives. If you were at our Thanksgiving Eve service, you heard um, a couple individuals share their, share their stories. And within the fabric of their stories, what they said was, we were living our lives the way we wanted to live them. We were in control. We were in charge. And we wreaked havoc within our lives. And it wasn't until we turned and said, God, sit on the throne of my heart. Control. You take control of my life because I'm not doing a very good job with it. Until they did that, that's when they started to, see, that's when they started to receive healing within their brokenness. I want to share with you a passage from Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And in this particular In this particular passage, it really gives us a clear indication of what we need to do when when we're going into that self-protection mode and we're erecting the walls up around us where we say, you know what, I don't want people around me. I don't want God in here. I want to keep keep all of this. I got to protect this. I got to control it. I got to keep myself, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm going to protect it. I'm going to keep it in my control. Change can only happen and occur when we live out steps of true repentance where we say, you know what, God? I'm in control, and I know that's not what you want. You want to invade my life, and you want to sit on the throne of my heart. My heart. And that's when we begin to understand that God is with us. That God is there to, to, uh, to live this out with us. In Hosea chapter 14, and in this particular passage, what we're, what we're reading about is, is the prophet, God is speaking through the prophet Hosea. And God is tell, it, what has happened is, Israel experienced some things that caused some major fear. And instead of Israel looking to God and saying, God, you take control, they became self-protecting. They started to build the walls up around them to say, you know what, we can take care of this. And what happened was, it literally destroyed them. And so God is coming to the prophet Hosea, and he's telling Hosea, to deliver this message. 
And in, in this message, he says this, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. He says, Return, O Israel, to let the Lord your God. I'm sorry. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless, find compassion. A couple things that we can learn from this. And I believe these are the steps that helps us to, to not allow fear to overcome us and, and for us to give the throne of our hearts and our lives back to God. The first one is this, return to the Lord your God. The key to change in any situation, any time, is letting go of control and allowing God to have control of our lives. That's our spiritual journey. That's what our spiritual journey is all about regardless, is allowing God to stay in control. And there's times, guys, where it, it, it's like we, it's like if you could have an outer body experience and look at yourself, it's like, how did I get to this point? How did I get to this point? It's like we're so unaware of when we take control. And there's times where we have to step back and say, you know what, I am trying to run my life and I'm, and I'm destroying it. And that's where we return to the Lord and we, say, we turn to God and we say, God, here are the reins. Take control. And that's when we become vulnerable with Him. That's when we become humble. That's when we have a contrite heart that says, God, here I am. Take my life. Take words with you, the passage of Scripture says. The, one, the verse. Take words with you. And what this implies is that when we approach God, we are specifically talking about what we're doing and what we need deliverance from. You understand what I'm saying? Not offering out a blanket prayer, but we're going to God and we're saying, God, I am struggling with this right here. God, I have taken control of my life, and because of this situation right here, it's driving me to want to control my life. It's driving me to want to sit on the throne of my life. And God, I'm destroying my life. God, will you take this? I repent of this. I give this to you. It's specifically saying to God, here it is, take it. The next one is this, forgive all our sins. Repentance is turning away from sin that's made possible by God's willingness to forgive us. And some problems can sometimes be relieved by changing our circumstances, doing the right things, but those changes will not lead to a realization of the fullest potential. It's giving God, our, it's giving God that sense of our sin, saying, God, take it, take it. Receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. You know what? Many of our efforts at times to change have a hidden but definite agenda. And what I mean by that is this. Sometimes we have a pain within our lives. Something may be happening within some context of within our lives. And we may say, you know what, I'm going to go, for, for an example, I'm going to go for some counseling. Or I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to someone about this. And really what happens is, we're not really concerned about letting go and getting rid of it. But what it is, we just want to go and we want to dump it. I'll be honest with you, there's conversations I have with, that I've had with individuals in counseling that that's what they want to do. They really don't want to change what they want to do is come in and just kind of dump. And it is cathartic for, for, for moments, right? I mean, many of us have done that. We've come clean with something. We've come to someone, we said, you know what, I'm really struggling with this. And it's like you walk away and you're like, man, that felt good. But the problem is, true change didn't occur because we just kind of dumped it. 
We didn't really come and say, God, take this, specifically take this, God, you know, and, you know, and, and give it to him. It was, like, it was like we had this hidden agenda that said, well, you know, I'll dump it, but I'm really not going to let go. Because if, if, I really, if I really go about addressing it, it's scary. If I really say that I'm never going to, you know, I'm going to really work on this, it's scary because we may be scared of failure or whatever it may be. True repentance is energized by the hope of knowing and worshiping God more richly, coming to Him and just saying, God, this is my worship to you. The next part of the verse I want to share with you says this, Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. What was taking place was Israel was threatened with national collapse. They were being threatened with national collapse. They were very weak. They were very vulnerable. They were very scared. And they were looking for other resources for immediate help. Just like we do at times. We go into that self, uh, self-protective mode. And they made a pact with Assyria to protect them. They turned to Assyria. They got their war horses for survival. Just, again, like we do. Instead of giving it to God, we look for other means. We look for something that might be more immediate. We look for something that, that, that might not be as costly as giving the throne of our hearts over to God and, getting, and, and allowing Him to, uh, not, uh, not depending on ourselves, but trusting implicitly and completely on Him. It goes on to say, we will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. And this is the core of repentance. People are invited to come. We sing songs about people coming and quenching their thirst from God. Quenching their thirst from the living waters. There's times, guys, where we are so thirsty spiritually. Some of you are sitting in here this morning that are extremely spiritually thirsty. But instead of allowing Christ to invade and just take, that, take the throne, a lot of times what we'll do is, out of our self-efficiency, we will grab a shovel and we will go and start trying to dig our own wells to quench that thirst. And what happens is, we become very exhausted. And we stay thirsty. All along trying to maintain control of our lives. And then the last one is, in you, the fatherless, find compassion. From this, we, we see that fatherless children are unprotected. They're vulnerable to the point of helplessness. And true repentance leads us into, the, into that experience. Trusting God's will for us. Understanding that we are vulnerable. Understanding that we are helplessness or helpless. And I believe that as we grab a hold of that, if we could grab a hold of that true sense of repentance to say, God... My life is in your hands. God, there are things in my life that I can't control. God, only you can control. You take the reins. You sit on the throne of my heart. I believe what's going to happen next is we're going to become more like King David, and we're going to have the prayer as King David did in the Psalms. And by the way, in your program, I think it says Psalm 53. It should say 56. He says this, But even when I'm afraid, and he's talking about the same stuff. There's things happening around him. There's, there's uh, enemies pressing hard against him, threatening him, threatening his kingdom. And he cries out to God, and he says this, But when, even when I'm afraid, I keep trusting you. He goes on to say, I praise your promises. I trust you, and am not afraid. No one can harm me. Guys, I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey. I don't know if, you know, you're sitting in here this morning and you say, you know what? I may not, I may not hate God like Herod did. I, I may not be that paranoid. I may not be that whacked out. But I've got control issues. 
I have a hard time allowing God to keep seated on the throne of my, uh, of my heart. Maybe this morning some of this has uh, resonated with you. I, I just want to say this, guys. I hope you really take the, that, 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 that uh, message from Hosea. That message of true repentance to heart. Because, guys, one of the things that Satan's going to fight you so hard on is for you to stay in control. You know why? Because you're going to be defeated if you do. Because it's when we become vulnerable. It's when we become humble. It's when we become contrite. It's when we, become, when we come into the presence of God and we say, God, my life is in your hands. I can't deal with these things. Only you can. And I'm giving you complete control. That's when we find freedom from our brokenness. That's when we're going to find freedom. And the last thing that Satan wants to happen in your life is for you to be given, for you to start living life to the fullest as Jesus promised. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. You've got to give it up. You've got to let it go. And I wonder how many in here this morning that need to let it go to find it. Bow your heads and your hearts with me as we close in a time of prayer. Lord God, I pray for your spirit to just have complete control right now in this room. I pray that he would uh, move about and minister to each of us. God, you know how fear can drive us to do some crazy things. And even as we read uh, you know, about this Christmas story so many years ago, we see an individual that was just just strapped with fear and paranoia. And as we look at his life, sometimes our lives don't miss that mark that much. We may not be so blatant with it, but God, so often we really struggle with allowing you to invade our lives. God, I I pray that this might be the day that your spirit would give us the courage to allow you to guide us into your presence and to give it up, to lose it. God, I pray that you would just meet us here right now, this morning. God, let us encounter you in a very intimate, powerful way. I pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.